Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for April 5th, 2021. Join us to celebrate World Health this week, building a fairer, healthier world for everyone. Monitor Monday is brought to you today by Reveal MD and Sound Physicians. Here's the rundown. Public health officials are warning of a fourth surge of the deadly coronavirus. Reporting our lead story is former frontline physician, Dr. John Fogel, who also was a consultant for the World Health Organization. Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, is promoting reduced cost and expanded access to the government's healthcare.gov. Matthew Albright has details. We'll also hear from Ellen St. Samnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorneys Nicole Emanuel and David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. More than 3.3 million people here in the United States lost their lives last year. It's the highest annual death toll ever, according to a government report issued last week. COVID-19 was responsible for approximately 375,000 of those deaths. Since the start of the pandemic, COVID-19 deaths now top 550,000. We'll have an update on the coronavirus at about 20 minutes after the hour. That's when we're going to be joined by Dr. John Fogel. He, the former frontline physician treating COVID patients. We're standing by. In the meantime, we have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Now, let me start today with the strangest denial of the year. This was presented on a user group, so I don't have the, ac- the real documentation, but here's what was presented to us. A patient who had commercial insurance from United Healthcare was admitted as an inpatient. The inpatient admission was approved by UHC. It was determined that the patient required a pacemaker and one was placed. After discharge, UHC denied the physician claim for placement of the pacemaker, stating that prior authorization was required. Now, this made no sense, so we asked the person who posted the case to put up the policy, and sure enough, UHC requires notification for any electrophysiology implant, even on inpatients. Okay, they're the payer, and they can make whatever rules they want, but it appears from what we know that the physician claim was, paid, was denied, but the hospital claim was paid. Now, there's a caveat. It is possible that the physician claim was denied and that UHC also removed the pacemaker placement from the hospital claim, and instead of paying it as a surgical admission, they paid it as a medical admission, which obviously would pay a lot less. But since the payment came in, maybe nobody even noticed it. They just made the adjustment. Just like they're doing with ED visits, UHC may have just changed the claim, paid less money, and hoped that nobody would ever see it. Now, you may want to check on this and make sure your finance people are watching for these. Emily is going to push out the link to the policy to our live listeners, and podcast listeners can find it in the show notes. Now, last week also, there was an OIG audit that was released from a Las Vegas hospital. Like many of the recent OIG audits, this focused on inpatient rehab admissions, and they had a very high denial rate. And also like past ERF audits, the hospital strenuously objected to the findings. 
And from the examples provided, I'm absolutely on the hospital side of this battle. This earth was admitting really sick people and getting them better. And they even met all of the onerous earth documentation requirements. Now the hospital called into question the qualifications of the reviewer and the OIG defended that person stating that not only were they a physical medicine physician, but they were quote, steeped in knowledge of Medicare earth requirements, unquote. I wonder how you measure steeping in knowledge. Is that a blood test or an x-ray? Finally, I must respond to a Rack Monitor article written last week that mentions me and discusses patients who stay overnight after an outpatient surgery. The article suggests that physicians who are doing this are keeping their patients only because it's what they're comfortable doing and that it's never medically necessary. That is simply not true. Right? We are getting much more efficient and stays are shorter, but there is a safe limit. But what was true is that keeping the patient overnight and calling that observation or inpatient is wrong. It's routine outpatient recovery and there's no additional revenue for that. So please don't read this and go tell your surgeons that every outpatient must go home the same day. If they require hospital care overnight, they can stay as outpatient. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Coming up next, the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. The Monitor Monday Rack Report is sponsored by Reveal MD. If your hospital or health system is looking to capitalize on an outpatient CDI program, if you want an easier, faster way to identify HCC gaps and more, discover the Reveal MD Risk Adjustment Tool. It finds revenue potential by the enterprise, specialty, provider, and patient in just four mouse clicks. See the Reveal MD tool in action at reveal-md.com. Here now is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Recovery audit contractors, RACs, are going to soon be auditing positron emission tomography or PET, PET, for initial treatment strategy in oncological conditions for compliance with medical necessity and documentation requirements. It has been added to the list of proposed RAC topics, and I know we've talked about that before. PET is covered only in clinical situations in which PET results may assist in avoiding an invasive diagnostic procedure or in which the PET results may assist in determining the optimal location to perform an invasive procedure. It's also considered reasonable and necessary when clinical management of the patient would differ depending on the staging of the cancer identified and in clinical situations in which the stage of the cancer remains in doubt after competing, I'm sorry, completing a standard diagnostic workup or it is expected that conventional imaging study information is insufficient for clinical management of the patient. Medical records will be reviewed to determine if the utilization of PET studies for initial anti-tumor treatment strategies are medically necessary according to the Medicare coverage indications. Also in these new 2021 audit targets, air ambulance, medical necessity and documentation requirements, hospice, continuous home care, medical necessity and documentation requirements, and ambulance transport subject to Smith Consolidated Billing. 
also on the chopping block, vagus nerve stimulation, VNS, whether it's reasonable and necessary for patients with medically refractory partial onset seizures for whom surgery is not recommended or for whom surgery has failed. VNS is not reasonable and necessary for all other types of seizure disorders which are medically refractory and for whom surgery is not recommended or for whom surgery has failed. VNS is reasonable and necessary for treatment-resistant depression through coverage of evidence development. Now, when you do end up getting a notice of overpayment for any of these topics or any other topics, you are safe from recruitment during the first and second levels of appeal. But you're not safe after the second level and before you get to an ALJ. Recruitment can and will occur. This is the time when you either pay the recruitment and hope to recoup your recruitment later on or file an injunction. An injunction is sometimes the right way to go. Read the Auditor Monitor Friday the 26th for a success story of obtaining a preliminary injunction for a provider. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And for more important news and information about healthcare auditing, be sure to read Nicole's reports on the Auditor Monitor. Subscribe today. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan McSandwick, David Glazer, and Dr. John Fogle, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's April the 5th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday, and we're celebrating World Health Week. Stand by. From the moment you get a denial until the moment you get a final decision, things you do can increase or decrease your chance of winning. For example, the way you submit the medical record can help or hurt your case. Should you use tabs in your exhibit book? The answer may surprise you. Get practical tips for improving appeals in a new Rack Monitor webcast, led by nationally recognized healthcare attorney David Glaser. David will provide useful legal arguments for responding to denials and proven strategies to best package your appeals, including how to write effective appeal letters and execute smart legal approaches. Register now to attend Build a Better Appeal. Gain proven strategies for improving letters, arguments, and process. It's Tuesday, April 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is the aforementioned David Glazer. And good morning, David. What could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So I think it might be covering too much of what you're going to talk about during an upcoming webcast during your Monitor Monday segment. I was thinking about giving a couple of tips about appeals letters, but then I realized anyone who signs up for the webinar would have to sit through that twice. So those tips will be found on April 13th, a week from tomorrow at 1.30 Eastern. Today's segment is going to go in a totally different direction. So if you've watched any of the Chauvin trial, or really any trial for that matter, you probably know that courtroom proceedings are quite different from normal presentations. There are strict limits on what can be said and how questions can be asked and answered. Then, at the end of the case, right before the jury is sent off to deliberate, the judge gives the jury instructions. Those instructions set out the legal standards that the jury is supposed to use during its deliberations. So I thought it might be interesting to discuss the jury instructions that were given in a criminal anti-kickback case. 
So this particular case is somewhat old. It involves Baptist Medical Center in Kansas City. So the hospital had paid two geriatric physicians about $75,000 a year to serve as medical directors. There's an email from a hospital executive indicating that the physicians weren't supposed to do much in exchange for that $75,000. There are also a variety of other transactions between the hospitals and the doctors, but they're not super important for this discussion. Ultimately, several hospital executives and the physician and even the lawyer that drafted the agreement were indicted. One of the government's theories was that the medical directorships were a sham designed to compensate the doctors for bringing patients to the hospital. So here is how the judge instructed the jury. In order to sustain its burden of proof against the hospital executives for the crime of violating the anti-kickback statute, the government must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendants under consideration offered or paid remuneration with the specific intent to induce, I'm sorry, the specific criminal intent to induce referrals. To offer or pay remuneration to induce referrals means to offer or pay remuneration with intent to gain influence over the reason or judgment of a person making referral decisions. The intent to gain such influence must, at least in part, within the reason the remuneration was offered or paid. On the other hand, defendants Anderson, Keel, and McClatchy cannot be convicted merely because they hoped or expected or believed that referrals may ensue from remuneration that was designed wholly for other purposes. Likewise, mere oral encouragement to refer patients for mere creation of an attractive place to which patients can be referred does not violate the law. There must be an offer or payment of remuneration to induce, as I have just defined it. Now, the instructions offer several lessons. One of them is you may be going, David, that was the most confusing thing you've ever done on Monitor Monday. I sure wish you'd put it up on the screen so we could read along. Well, that's kind of the point. I'm trying to make this realistic. If you were on a jury, you would listen to the judge read that, and you'd have to go back into the deliberation room and try to remember what you just heard. So. If you find yourself thinking, do people really understand what remuneration is? And could they really have followed along? You've just learned an important lesson about why you may want to do everything you can to avoid having your fate being decided by a jury. So hopefully, by being a bit cautious on the front end, you can avoid having to sing Warren Zevon's song, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, because it's never good when the excrement, or pretty much anything else besides air, it's the fan. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Dead, get me out of this. How? Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fedrishing and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now for the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandwich. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and a good April Monday, all. I so value when our Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor listeners reach out to me on social media, and many did last week after my broadcast and article on eviction moratoriums. 
With many hospitalized patients dealing with housing insecurity, concerns are rampant specific to extended hospitalizations and safe discharge planning options, not to mention the potential fiscal consequences for healthcare organizations. Pre-pandemic, housing instability contributed to patients being 32% more likely to exceed average hospitalization length of stay and over 50% of readmissions. Emergency department visits for patients experiencing homelessness can cost on average $3,700 per visit and may occur up to five to six times annually. The price tag approximately $18,500 per patient. Highest users can cost upwards of $44,000. However, amid what some experts are referring to as the current fourth wave of COVID transmission, newer and costlier challenges await the industry for patients experiencing housing challenges. Here are the facts. The CDC did extend the order to prevent evictions through June 30th, 2021. The order protects tenants who have done their best to obtain government assistance for housing, are unable to pay their full rent due to a substantial loss of income, are making their best efforts to ensure timely partial payments of rent, and would become homeless or have to move into shared living settings if evicted. To qualify for protection, tenants must have one of the following financial criteria be applicable, earn less than $99,000 as individuals or $198,000 if filing joint tax returns for 2020, not be required to report income to the IRS in 2020, or have received an economic stimulus check or other similar federally authorized programs made to individuals in 2021. In addition, the Federal Housing Administration has also extended its ban on evictions for properties financed through FHA-insured single-family and government-backed mortgage buyers, as in Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Now, despite the CDC order, loopholes in rental and lease agreements may force individuals and families into crowded living situations, increasing the potential of their COVID transmission. Many state governments have implemented unique eviction and utility shutoff moratorium laws and foreclosure bans. These protections generally don't relieve tenants or homeowners of the obligation to pay rent or mortgage, but may suspend the ability of landlords or lenders to file new eviction or foreclosure cases or enforce orders to vacate property. The NOLO.com website provides an interactive table with each state law, as well as a tool, which informs individuals if an address is covered by federal eviction bans. These references will also appear in my upcoming Rack Monitor article this Thursday. How much do eviction moratorium and housing protections impact our Monitor Monday listeners? This week's poll asks, How have homelessness or housing insecurity impacted patient throughput during the pandemic? Whether A, no input, B, increased emergency department admissions, C, increased hospitalizations, whether OBS or inpatient, D, increased discharge delays, E, B, C, and D, since you all always chide me for not including something like that, and E, do not know. We'll review the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author Alan Fink Sandwich. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday legislative update. 
The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Chuck. Last Wednesday in Pittsburgh, President Biden rolled out his $2 trillion infrastructure proposal focused on bridges and roads, education, taxes, climate change, and health care. And just so we get the nomenclature right, the proposal that Biden announced is titled the American Jobs Act. The American Jobs Act at $2 trillion is the first phase of a broader infrastructure and stimulus plan called the Build Back Better Plan, which is projected to be about $7 trillion. The Build Back Better plan is more fun to say, but we'll focus on the American Jobs Act for the moment. On the healthcare front, the package launched last week includes $400 billion to expand Medicaid's home and community-based services. The funding would be primarily directed towards improving the low-wage caregiving jobs in that healthcare sector. We'll hear more about this funding and the status of home-based services next week on this program from our special guest, William Dombey, president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. The American Jobs Act would also provide $30 billion to improve the nation's security against health threats like the one we faced over the past year. That money would be put towards building up the strategic national stockpile, accelerating research into testing and therapy for future outbreaks, developing prototype vaccines, and ensuring rapid vaccine production. As we're all probably aware, Biden's American Jobs Plan and the Build Back Better Plan both have a long way to go in terms of any specific provisions being adopted as law, but the administration is hoping for some version of the plan to be passed this summer. In other news, the IRS announced that personal protective equipment purchased by taxpayers, such as masks, hand sanitizer, and even wipes, are considered medical expenses and therefore can be paid through one's tax-free FSA, HRA, or HSA. The expenses are also tax-deductible if a taxpayer's total medical expenses exceed 7.5% of their income. And at the state level, Florida passed a law last week that protects Florida businesses and healthcare providers from COVID lawsuits. If those organizations made a good effort to follow guidelines to prevent the spread of disease. Under the law retroactive to when the pandemic started, any related lawsuit would have to demonstrate that the business deliberately ignored guidelines. And a similar law in Arizona is awaiting its governor's signature. Finally, in an ongoing segment I'll call Things Go Better with a Vaccine, the CDC published guidance last week stating that vaccinated people can safely resume domestic travel without having to take the COVID test. The CDC still warns that travelers, vaccinated or not, should continue to wear masks and practice social distancing. And travelers who have not yet been vaccinated should continue to get tested before and after travel. So get vaccinated, put your mask in its upright position, and pass the peanuts. Chuck? Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is a chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. And coming up next, the very interesting results in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And you are listening to Monitor Monday Standby. Over the past year, maintaining strict regulatory compliance has been quite a challenge. A variety of factors, from a deluge of regulatory news to the deadly pandemic, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. 
Now, more than ever, you need to be sure everyone on your team, including those working remotely, are following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your whole team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's good news. You can get a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at Rack University. Here now are the results of today's Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here's Alan. Well, uh, Chuck, and it's always interesting when you say that, I watch and see, yep, there are the people getting their last results in. So how has homelessness or housing insecurity impacted patient throughput during the pandemic for your organization? Well, few, about 11% had no impact, but the surprises came from the larger scale numbers. Increased ED admissions in and of themselves, only about one and a half percent increased hospitalizations, whether OBS or inpatient, also about 1%. Increased discharge delays, here's where we start to see the real impact, just about 11%, but B, C, and D combined, well, that was 26% of our listeners. Only 50% do not know, and I suppose those folks are going to be connecting with their case management and care coordination departments as we finish this broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. Coming up next, is there a fourth surge coming your way? We'll have the details next. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. This segment is sponsored by Sound Physician Advisory Services. To find out how your hospital compares with others, take their nationwide industry survey by clicking the button on your screen. Add your responses to the study and sign up to get valuable industry insights from hospitals around the country. For more information, visit soundphysicians.com. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there are fears of a fourth surge of the deadly coronavirus. For more on this developing story, we check in now with former frontline physician, Dr. John Fogel. First, Dr. Fogel, uh, before we begin, I want to thank you for your service on behalf of the World Health Organization. It's only fitting today that you'd be on the broadcast to report on what might be a fourth wave of the deadly virus. Dr. John. Good morning. Chuck, I thought I would talk about the daily questions I get about COVID-19. One, what vaccine is the best? That's an easy answer. It's the one that you can get in your arm the fastest. There are three different vaccines that have received emergency use authorization in the U.S. There are the two-dose Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and Johnson & Johnson, which is a single shot. My family has sampled them all. They each have remarkable efficacy with close to zero risk of worrisome side effects. Two, can I still get COVID-19 if I'm fully vaccinated? Yes. However, the risk is small. And most importantly, the best thing that all the vaccines do is prevent you from getting really sick, ending up in the hospital, and dying. Just remember that being vaccinated protects you, not others, at least until we reach herd immunity. You still need to wear a mask because you can potentially transmit COVID. Three, why did I feel so sick after my second shot? A headache, fever, chills, muscle pains, and tiredness are common symptoms for one to two days especially following the second shot. The first shot causes your body to develop antibodies, an army specially designed to fight a coronavirus invasion. 
that second shot is an invasion, and your new antibody army is going to attack it. That battle may make you feel sick. View it as a good thing, as your body is developing a strong immune response to COVID. Four, do I need to worry about the variants? No and yes. We're in a race to vaccinate before the virus mutates into a form that can evade our antibody army. Case numbers, hospitalizations, and deaths are currently spiking in some parts of the world, including most of Europe. France has just reclosed schools for the next three weeks. There's a strict lockdown in the Philippines, and hospitalizations and deaths are skyrocketing in Brazil. It's the variants and low vaccination rates that are contributing to this fourth wave. The Brazilian and South African variants are already here in significant numbers, and more than half of all new cases in Florida are the B117 variant from the UK. Fortunately, our vaccines are effective enough against these current variants. It's the future virus mutations I'm concerned about. And five, perhaps the biggest question, should I be worried that our case numbers here are starting to climb back up after the promising drop in late February and early March? Well, that depends. We are doing a few things extremely well. We have managed to fully vaccinate greater than 17% of the population, and 31% have received at least one shot of the two-dose vaccines. President Biden has already easily exceeded his promise of 100 million vaccinations in his first 100 days in office, and soon every American over age 16 can register for a shot. Chuck, this sounds great, right? Uh, Our numbers are climbing for a few reasons. COVID fatigue is real. This pandemic has been going on for over a year. We all want it to be over, but we shouldn't be celebrating five yards shy of the end zone. It's still too cold in much of the country to gather and eat outdoors. Yet a number of states have stopped mask mandates, relaxed restrictions, and opened up their bars and restaurants and gyms for indoor activities. A few weeks ago, huge numbers of young people gathered down in Florida for spring break. Is that our most recent super spreader event? Are cases here about to surge again? I hope and pray not. Ultimately, COVID-19 is a global disease. We need to make the vaccines available to all countries to stem new and potentially more transmissible transmissible and deadlier variants from evolving elsewhere and then spreading here. So remember that these vaccines work. So get vaccinated. Please continue to wear masks and practice the other public health recommendations regarding hand washing and social distancing. This pandemic won't be over for anyone until it's over for everyone around the world. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much. That was Dr. John Fogel. He's a former frontline physician. He was administering to patients at the Rhode Island Alternative Field Site Hospital as a member of the Brown University's Emergency Department. And that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fick, Sandra, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. John Fogel, who reported our lead story. When not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody, and thanks for sharing your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.